so we saw this big outpouring of activism from scientists that we haven't really seen to that degree before and realized like, oh, like this is something that can, that can continue and these are the voices that we can be raising up through an online publication. With the coronavirus pandemic, many journalists are finding themselves writing stories from a scientific angle, something they may not be used to doing. What can scientists and science journalists teach us about tackling these often difficult concepts? I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Alan Lasser is the co-founder of Massive Science Inc., a media company that wants to give everyone scientific tools to grapple with uncertainty. He also works with small startups and nonprofits to design and code elegant front-end products and back-end systems. Welcome to the podcast, Alan. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. So first of all, tell me about your experience as a designer. What's your career path? How did you uh, end up starting Massive Science? Yeah. So I have had a long, long-standing interest in the web and publishing, going back all the way to doing the design for my high school newspaper. Um, I went to college. I didn't specifically focus on visual design. Uh, I did a combination of computer science and American studies focusing on cultural landscapes. So looking at kind of the, the design of our surroundings from different periods in time and what that tells you about the people who made them. So kind of went a little bit broad. And then I also worked on a student blog when I was at Boston University called The Quad. And from there, I really built my chops in web publishing, really found that that was a niche that I loved to work in. And after graduating, I went to go work at a small journalism startup called Muckrock, based in Boston. And there, I did a lot of work on the front end of the application. If you don't know what Muckrock is, it is a set of tools that help journalists do their jobs better. So when I was there, I was working on the FOIA filing and organizing product they have. Since I left, they've merged with Document Cloud and a bunch of other tools. So they're really becoming this really nice suite of tools for journalists. And after I left Muckrock, that's when I started working on Massive Science with my two co-founders, Nadia Artel and Gabe Stein. What were you thinking about launching Massive Science? What did you want to do? So the starting point for Massive was being uh, someone who's had a longstanding interest in science, but not being a scientist and, you know, doing a lot of reading, following the news around science and being a little dissatisfied with the way a lot of it was being covered. Seeing the way that a lot of coverage was focused on conclusions and big takeaways and like everything has to be a monumental discovery and seeing the kind of science stories that I really like, like big fan of John McPhee. Currently, I think The Atlantic is doing great coverage. I think Ed Yong and Robinson Mayer are doing some really, really fantastic science reporting. And the common thread for those is all that it's focused much more on the story of how the discovery came to be, that kind of human journey of looking at scientists, not as kind of monolithic experts who are just producing progress and innovation, but looking at them as people who are interested in solving problems and taking different approaches to those problems and the journey of how you arrive at the solution being the most interesting part. So that was the starting point. And we were able to launch at the beginning of 2017. And that was also right around the time of the first March for Science in Washington, D.C. And we looked at this and we saw, you know, thousands of scientists who 
really wanted to feel like their work was being valued highly, that they were visible, that they had a voice in the way that our culture was shaping up at that time. So we saw this big outpouring of activism from scientists that we haven't really seen to that degree before and realized like, oh, like this is something that can, that can continue. And these are the voices that we can be raising up through an online publication. So we saw the need for these scientists who want their work and their values to be better expressed and spread further. And with our need to kind of find a new way of telling science stories. You know, some, some reporters, some journalists get a little, little scared when they're, when they're given an assignment that has a maybe sort of a heavy science angle to it. One of our producers, Amber Healy, actually, she loves doing science reporting. She just loves to get into the numbers and the nitty gritty of cause and effect of why, why something's happening in the community and sort of exploring the scientific angles of it. Why do some journalists, do you think, have a hard time with science reporting? Science reporting is difficult because a lot of the knowledge at this point is really highly specialized. And a lot of the people who have that knowledge aren't great at communicating it. It's a bit of a trope that like scientists don't know how to communicate, and it's unfairly earned because there are a lot of great scientists. There's this trope that scientists aren't great communicators, and I feel like it's unfairly earned because this is an expectation that hasn't really been made of a lot of people in academia. When you're writing, you're writing for peer review committees and for journals. You're not writing for a general audience. And so when it comes time to talk to those scientists and ask what they think, a lot of them just don't really have that skill set for expressing themselves clearly in a way that is exciting and what a journalist may need in order to tell their story. Tell me a little bit about Massive Science Mission. What is it you're trying to do? Our mission is to make scientists better communicators and improve the quality of the discussion about science in the larger culture by doing that. So one way we do that is by publishing articles that our scientists write. Some of our scientists decide that they want to leave academia or when they're done with their postdoc, they don't want to follow an academic career track. And there's a lot of people like that. And for them, we can provide the kind of opportunity to develop a portfolio, publish and get paid for their work, be an outlet for them. Other people, they're really interested in writing and communicating, but they're not trying to make it a full-time career. So what we're doing with them is really we're, we have this community of over 2,000 scientists at this point. And what we really want to do is have as many scientists as possible, be really great at talking about what they're doing to anyone and know how to tell a story about what they're doing. And that's the really important part. So what have been some of the big stories that you guys have done? So we've done a really interesting mix of stuff. We do uh, some op-eds. We do some straight, we call them translation pieces, where you take a piece of research that came out recently and translate it for a lay audience. And we've even done some original reporting as well. So one of our most popular pieces recently was this kind of like fact-checking article about do houseplants purify your air? And while it's true that plants purify the air, the like amount of plants you would have to fill your apartment with 
in order to clean the air to the degree that like an air purifier would is kind of absurd. So kind of clearing up some misinformation or miscommunication in that way. We've obviously been doing a lot of coronavirus coverage lately and really working hard to explain as much of the basic fundamental science of it as we can. Like, what is a test kit? How does that work? How is it transmitted? We've had a lot of pieces submitted by epidemiologists. Like, how do these models work? Where do they come from? What's the science behind them? And it's actually been our first foray into doing explanatory type pieces, which is something we've tried to stay away from in order to maintain that focus on storytelling. A really great piece of storytelling we published was a opinion piece by a researcher named uh, Devong Mehta, and he was researching GMOs. And we've done some work on GMOs and trying to clear up the misinformation around them. His piece was why he's leaving GMO research. And it, he told the story about how frustrating it was to see this technique, this technology as a tool for helping feed large parts of the world and having that work attacked and disparaged by people in the communities that he was living in and having it be really difficult to talk about the work he was doing. Another piece in that vein that we published was by a researcher named Ashley Poivinette, and she's a neuroscientist at University of San Diego. And she wrote about the difficulty of talking about her research on mice in the lab with people who aren't scientists and the difficulty of communicating the realities of her job with people who don't have a really full picture of the role that, you know, animal testing plays in scientific research and the complicated ethics behind it. That's a small sampling of the kind of pieces we do. But I hope that gives you a good picture of this kind of stuff we cover. It does. You know, who do you see as the audience for your content? We really see the audience as being a few different key groups. The first one is definitely like parents and teachers, people who spend a good deal of time, energy, and thought thinking about how to, one, get their kids interested in science, and two, talk about these kind of bigger concepts and break them down in a way that's easier to explain. And stories are a great vehicle for that. Another audience that is really key to us are, we call them like STEM professionals. They're people who work in tech or science or research, even engineering, but who aren't, you know, researchers in the field, reading journals and keeping a really close eye on the work that's happening. So we want to provide a very kind of up-to-date understanding of what the current scientific research is being done and present it in a way that doesn't dumb it down at all, but breaks it down in a way that's a little more understandable. Let's circle back to the coronavirus. You know, what what was um, Massive Science's approach from the beginning, how it was going to cover this? Yeah, so for our coronavirus coverage, we were very fortunate to have Dan Samardinsky be our our lead editor on the team, since he has a background in biochemistry and lab research. That brought a level of expertise and firsthand knowledge to the process of lab work that was really crucial to our early coverage. We looked at a lot of news stories early on that, you know, explained what was happening in the situation politically and economically. And some of this was like, there's not enough test kits. The test kits are contaminated. 
there's community spread, we should be doing more tracing. And a lot of the articles in major publications made gestures at this at you know this stuff being based in science and public health research, but didn't really go that deep into what that research says or why it's the right course of action. Or even, you know, how does a test kit work? How can one be contaminated? So we spent a lot of our early efforts trying to flesh out a lot of the basics of public health and how the situation is being handled from the perspective of somebody who's working in a lab. As the crisis was unfolding, we had a lot of questions ourselves as people living through it and saw a lot of questions being asked on social media, within news stories. And one thing we did was deploy a like living Q&A page where readers can submit questions to us. We can solicit questions through our newsletter or through social media and then pass those off to epidemiologists, public health researchers, biologists in our community in order to answer those questions from a point of authority. And one really valuable thing, I think, is oftentimes when you're dealing with scientific questions and with SARS-CoV-2 specifically, like this is new biology. There's a lot of original research that's happening right now to understand what this virus is and how it works. And so communicating to folks that Sometimes we don't know, or the answer to a question requires more research, and not being shy about just saying that when that is the case. You know, you said that sort of early on you were looking at the the reporting in the mainstream news about the coronavirus. Have you seen, you know, as time has gone on and, and reporters have had a little more time to gain a better understanding of, of what they're dealing with, have you seen a, a shift in how it's being reported? I think I have. I think I've seen... There's fewer stories now about the fundamental basics of the public health. Like there were a few waves of stories earlier on about, you know, when social distancing was new to people, when it was even a little uncertain what we should be doing uh, or even how the virus worked, what the symptoms were. Now it seems like we're moving into a space much more of looking ahead a little bit and trying to prepare ourselves for what what the future is going to bring for the next 12 to 18 months until we have a vaccine and trying to preemptively answer some of the questions of when it might be safe to stop social distancing, what consequences would be if we get it wrong and really trying to prepare everyone for the next set of decisions we're going to have to make rather than, you know, catching up to try and figure out all the facts as the situation's unfolding. What is it about science that you enjoy covering? For me, the most interesting part of the science is the creativity involved. When you look at some of, when you look at any experiment, and there's some great examples of this with high profile experiments in the last couple of years, like I think the story of the, the LIGO, the gravity wave detector, is so fascinating. Like just the whole laboratory setup they had, the fact that it was as complex, that it had to be reproduced in a different part of either the country or you know the world in order to make sure that the readings were accurate. There's so much ingenuity that goes into the research and the discovery and the fundamental practice of asking questions and being really skeptical about the world you live in and being really open to new information when it comes and being really open-minded and always learning. Like all those pieces are what to me makes science reporting so exciting. 
So are you doing a lot of science reporting right now? Or are you in sort of some other aspect of massive science? I've always been more on the publishing side of things. So working on the operations of the organization, working on the website, the design, the presentation, working on some of the revenue pieces of the puzzle, and really giving Dan and the edit team, which is uh, about five or six people at this point, their own space to work within. And it's a really interesting team because we have, you know, scientists who have grown into these editor positions as they've learned how to become better communicators and better editors with training from media professionals that we've worked with in the past. And we have a really nice kind of system running right now. So I'm focused more on the more on the maintenance at this point and making sure that everything keeps working, that we're able to keep publishing, that any roadblocks a team runs into get solved quickly. So that's kind of where I fit into the picture. You know, on this podcast, we, we get a lot of, uh, we get a lot of reporters, broadcasters, people who are, who are producing content. We, we get people who do, you know, data visualizations. They do, they do video and whatnot. And occasionally we get people in to come in and talk about, talk about marketing and, and advertising and the business, business side of it. We don't always get that uh, many chances to talk to somebody who's, who's sort of in the nuts and bolts of actually running a website. And, you know, I, I've had the experience of working on, on a couple of websites. And interacting with sort of the tech side of it, not me personally doing stuff, but, you know, working with them to develop ideas, you know, hey, how can we do this? How can we improve this? What do you see the challenges for somebody in that position for keeping the, the site running to looking forward to new features, new ideas that, that would help improve the, the website? One of my favorite things about working on the web is the ability for lots of two-way communication. You're not just broadcasting your message, but you really have the opportunity to develop a conversation with your readers, your audience, and have a real ability to set up channels to hear what they have to say and bring them into the fold. I think membership programs are, you're seeing them pop up more and more, and I think that's a one of a the outcomes of this, where you can establish a really tight relationship between the community that is reading the work and supporting it and challenging it even to produce, tell new different stories that they want to hear and see. So when you were, when you were at Muckrock, you, were, you, were you building tools for journalists? What types of tools were you building? The main focus was the FOIA filing tool. A lot of the energy went into that and making sure that it was always easier for people to manage, to file, to handle all the weird arcane ways that different agencies handle this stuff. It's a very human process, so it's not orderly. It's not the rules can be broken or bend all the time, and trying to adapt to that was a really interesting challenge. Another tool I worked on was crowdfunding. So this gets back to you know the kind of the membership stuff I was saying. Crowdfunding was a vehicle where reporters could present projects in almost in a Kickstarter type capacity and basically turn their audience into a small network of supporters for a specific project that maybe a larger newsroom wouldn't fund. Or if it's a freelance journalist, they want to tell the story, feel like it's really important, but don't have any larger organizational buy-in. So they're on their own, which is a interesting and really cool space to be. A lot of great work gets done that way. And so trying to find a way to help those people out and then also develop a small audience around the work that they're doing 
and in particular, an audience that has buy-in in what they're doing and is really invested in it. Kind of that place where the where the content producer is sort of meeting the audience. It's, you know, figuring out what that bridge is, you know, that they're going to support you in some way. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about, you know, what it takes to sort of identify a need and develop a product for it or a tool for it for a newsroom. What sort of goes into that process and what's that thinking like? A lot of the really important work when it comes to building tools for newsrooms, journalists, and really anybody is watching the way that people work already and listening and learning from what they're doing and seeing the small places where there's either an excessive amount of repetition that could be reduced or some element of friction that can be smoothed out. So I've always really advocated for building these systems by starting with a really long, hard, dumb way of doing it and slowly, incrementally getting to a point where it is faster, smarter, and easier. I took a lot of that learning to Massive and ended up developing a nice set of internal workflows and tools that help us work. We're a remote team. We built the company to be remote. And that had its own set of challenges, but by focusing on the tools we were using and the way that we were working together, not in a single office, we've ended up with a nice set of processes that we can bring new people into, talk about pretty clearly and confidently, and everybody feels like they're on the same page and is looking at the same thing, which is the most important part. I find that really fascinating, taking sort of the journalism process of creation and then figuring out how, you know, what, what ways you can help make that function smoother, especially when in environments like this, where, for example, with the coronavirus going on, that we've got, you know, everybody's working from home, everybody's sort of leaning on maybe some tools that they had in place and some tools that they never used before, you know, you're jumping on Slack, jumping on, on Zoom uh, to try to facilitate conversations. But um, it's one of the nice things I think about a digital newsroom is that I think there's this sort of willingness to find solutions to some of these business problems. Uh, these workflow problems, I guess, is what is, is the better way to put it. I think with everyone entering into these new remote situations and from what I've learned working with these tools, like the just having the tool is not enough. Like you need to have the mindset and the practices and the habits to use that tool effectively. Kind of in the same way that you can go to like an art store and buy a set of nice paints, but that doesn't mean that doesn't immediately make you a great painter. You still have to put in lots of practice and lots of work and get yourself to think and work as a painter in order to, you know, get that done. It's not, <laughs> it's not a great, not a very clean analogy, but like just because you install Zoom on your, on your laptop or your coworkers all install Zoom, that doesn't immediately mean that you're going to be great at remote working. So being patient with everyone and giving the space for everyone to build that culture slowly, I think is really important. Yeah. And I think, I think it's, you know, maybe more people, I can't speak for the, the larger workforce out there, but certainly for the newsroom that I'm a part of, we're, we're pretty remote in the way we do things. So we, we were kind of the transition for us to covering the coronavirus was, was, there was like really no difference. It was just a matter of, you know, shifting our focus as to what the, the story was, but I could see the problems uh, of newsrooms. And I think newsrooms, and journalists have become a lot more adaptive to 
technology that's going to help them do their work better. They, I think they're they're less afraid maybe than they were year, years past. Um, Alan, thank you for coming on the podcast. This has been great. Um, I, I encourage everybody to go to Massive Science. I read a few stories while I was there. It was pretty pretty great stuff. And I wish you luck. Thanks so much. Yeah, the website is uh, MassiveSci, M-A-S-S-I-V-E-S-C-I dot com. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Alan Lasser, A-L-L-A-N. We're a rare breed, but there's a few of us. <laughs> All right, thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.